listen. Just listen. I'm Miles Pulaski, and you're listening to Second Story Podcast. Second Story is Serendipity Theater Collective's hybrid performance series of stories, wine, and music. A collaboration among writers, actors, musicians, and others to create good stories in good times. The stories are written by the performers themselves, sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always thought-provoking. And now, Second Story company member Andrew Riley. There wasn't much to do on the two-hour flight from Delhi to Bombay. I mostly looked out the window. I think the pilot took a nap. But the beautiful Indian girl in seat 23D just spent the whole trip hiding behind a copy of National Geographic and not knowing how to talk to women aboard domestic flights in foreign countries. Our entire conversation consisted of of me awkwardly waving after we'd landed as though to say, you can go first, and hoping she would hear that as, you have very pretty green eyes. When I saw her again that afternoon in the Bombay marketplace, now she was someone, and I was someone. She was the girl from the flight. I was the guy from the flight. I had context. I was in. And at the time, I was also 26. I was living in this terrible, terrible apartment in Wicker Park, and I was about to abandon my software engineering career for this supposedly glamorous life of writing. And I'd gone to India looking for ideas and adventure. And like most 26-year-old guys, I thought maybe this mystery girl with the nice-looking camera (laughs) could help some of that along. I need your help, I told her, trying not to sweat in the brutal Indian heat. I don't know what to buy for my sister back home. Oh, is that so, she asked, her voice carrying just a hint of a British accent. You couldn't ask me about that on the plane? What, you you were on my flight? No, what were the odds? Come, come, come on. This might be a surprise, she said, not just smiling, but almost laughing at me. But buzz-cut white people tend to stick out in this country. She introduced herself as Jaya. My Indian mother's looks, my grandmother's name, and my British father's tightness with money, she joked. She took my hand, slightly, just enough to guide, but not enough to hold. As we walked through the marketplace in search of bargains on throw pillows and jewelry, between buying bracelets and turning down offers on rugs, I asked her about that camera she was carrying. I work freelance, she explained. For you, this might be vacation, but for me, this is work. I told her about my big plan to become a writer. Oh, then I'm going to show you how to take pictures, she said. You won't get any good jobs if all you can do is scribble some words. Here, she said, handing me the camera. Capture something beautiful. And I pointed the lens right back at her. Click. That's cute, she said, but this picture's terrible. You didn't let it focus. Look at this, my hair's blowing all over the place. And she took hold of the camera, turning some dials and pressing some buttons before handing it back to me. Don't think about what's in the shot, she said. Just think about what you see. Come on, I'll show you. She led me through the city, she and I taking turns shooting the opulent wealth and abhorrent squalor all sitting side by side. Centuries of blatant class warfare had formed two cities at once here, 
but rather than separate them by roads or rivers, the people of Bombay had simply built on top of each other, their slums collapsing next door to the gated estates of men worth billions and their shanty towns all cowering in the shadows of mansions. Take a picture of that, she said, pointing towards one miniature palace in particular and trying my best to impress her. I turned the lens so it would catch the sun's rays bursting over the top of the marble fence that was protecting it from would-be invaders. Click. Not bad, she said, before fiddling with the knobs, stepping back and ducking down on one knee before shooting. But there's more over there than just the house. She showed me what she had captured. There was the house, yes, but in hers, that marble fence I had focused on just trailed off into the horizon, and the estate rose up like some luxurious volcano in this sea of filth, garbage lining the dirt sidewalks as a man lay in the street, right leg missing, skin badly flaking. The man who lives in that house is a friend of our family, she explained. We came here often when I was a child, which my mother loved, because she could see her family, even though some of her relatives never forgave her for running off with Agora. What's Agora? I asked. She paused a moment. It's a Hindi word. And then, pointing at my arm, white man. Well, what would they think of you running around town like this with me? I asked. My older relatives would be upset, she said. And my younger relatives wouldn't care, but I don't tell my family everything. And I thought about my own family at home, about who would be happy I had met this intelligent, headstrong woman, and who would, she, who would be angry she had brown skin. And perhaps this girl and I had more in common than I realized. Jaya insisted we go to insomnia that evening, that posh nightclub, which at the time was the place to see and be seen in Bombay after dark. You'll laugh at the good treatment they give us, she said. You're white. I'm pretty. They'll think we're rich. <laughs> and sure enough, as we arrived that night, two large, serious-looking bouncers in very expensive-looking suits escorted us past the entire line, through the velvet rope, and up to our very own private booth, high above the dance floor, towering over the crowd, whispering God knows what to each other as they pointed up at us. Maybe something about how beautiful she looked in that dark blue top or how strangely fashionable my Superman t-shirt was. I was, I was underdressed. I was deafened by obnoxious Eurotrash music, and I hate obnoxious Eurotrash music. It almost felt like home. Except at home, no one ever mistook me for a rich man. And at home, beautiful women weren't going out of their way to teach me the ways of the world while making out with me in top shelf nightclubs. At home, life was never this good. But we spent that week exploring the city together. She acting as teacher, tour guide, and cultural ambassador. Each day we would dine in a different cafe, giving a new story to the revolving cast of waiters we encountered. Actually, we're, we're here on business. Uh, thank you, yes, we're here on our honeymoon, yes. Uh, don't tell anyone, but we're here shooting a Bollywood remake of Star Wars where I play Han Solo and she plays Princess Leia, but shh, keep it up, One afternoon, uh, we were at the gateway of India, that famous archway on the eastern harbor of the city, and she pointed out this group of three young Indian men all along the fence, all scowling very hatefully in my direction. And I recognized that look, 
I'd seen it on the faces of the male friends of a black woman I'd gone out with, all of twice when I was 23. But I recognized that look, the way they had stared me down the one and only time I ever met them. They don't like us, Jaya said. No, I replied. They don't like me, Gora. They think I've stolen something from them. But look over there, I joked, pointing towards this 30-ish looking white man standing by himself, his Christos polo shirt and Queensland rugby baseball cap giving him away as Australian. That guy loves me. And taking my gesturing as some kind of invitation, the Australian walked over to us, tipping his hat to her before stopping in front of me. I just want to tell you, he said, his gaze alternating between my eyes and her chest. It's nice to know I'm not the only one here who's into the brownies. And the Australian went on his way, and I turned to Jaya, expecting to see a woman in some kind of embarrassed tears or her face awash in horror, but instead her mouth just formed this awesome, wicked grin. If my father hadn't told me so much about what goes on in Indian jails, she said, I'd run over there and kick that Kiwi's ass back into the bed of the sheep he climbed off of. <laughs> and I, I started to apologize, but she wouldn't have it. I've learned not to listen, she said. This country doesn't treat its women too well, even while it dresses us in the finest pashmina and drapes us in the most beautiful jewelry. I think it rubs off on the men who come to visit. Well, I said, if it makes you feel better, I don't have a thing for Indian girls, but I'm not going to lie. The British thing is really, really hot. <laughs> we talked a lot on those Bombay streets, though, about our travels and our big plans and our families and friends and about the lives we wanted to live. But the more we talked about all those things, the more I noticed the one thing we didn't talk about, home, as in what happened when we each returned to ours. Our time was running out, but the longer we waited, the more I understood why we danced around it. Neither of us knew the answer. On the last day of her assignment, we stood atop the hill in Seven Bungalow Garden Park, watching the boats sail out of the harbor towards the Arabian Sea. She turned her camera towards a particularly magnificent dual-sail yacht, and after snapping away, handed it to me. Here, she said, smiling brightly. Show me how much I've taught you. And I put my eye to the viewfinder, aiming it into the sea, following a pair of sailboats out of the harbor, and thinking about this moment we were stumbling towards, she and I, with the whole world ahead of us, suddenly forced to decide whether to drop anchor or whether to set sail where the winds took us. What happens after tonight, I asked, handing it back to her. I mean, when you leave, is that it? Do we stay in touch? What do we do? She lowered her head for a moment and, taking a deep breath, said, I like you very much, Andrew, voice quivering as she spoke. I know we just met, but I like us. She rested her hands in mine as the late afternoon sun beat down on us finally raising her eyes to meet mine and saying, come back to England with me.
Come back to England with me, she said. You're bored with Chicago. You're ready for a new life. Come with me. Be with me. And in my head, a million blinding, beautiful images flashed at once. She and I growing together, my words flourishing under the tender care of my beautiful new muse, her photography opening my eyes to fantastic worlds I couldn't even dream of. There they go, the art world's hottest couple, rising literary star Andrew Riley and world-famous photographer Jaya. Jaya, what was her last name? And how old was she? And what were her feelings on guns, God, abortion? What else didn't I know about this woman? And what did I know about her? And what did she really know about me? I mean, did I, did I want to move to England to live with a girl I just met last week on vacation? I mean, who do we think we were? I wanted to say something beautiful something poetic and wondrous that wouldn't let her down, something that would show her how badly I wanted to hold on to her, but all that came out was, I can't. Jaya smiled and put her hand on my cheek as those pretty green eyes began to well up. I understand, she said. You have to go. We both do. And what killed me was that, the way she stressed the word both. Just enough to guide but not enough to hold. We pulled each other close, her lips pressed softly to mine for what must have been hours, days, forever, until I stepped back, understanding this was only going to become more difficult the longer either of us held on. Head down, I forged my way into the crowded street to start the long walk to my hotel, stopping briefly to look back towards where she was standing, thinking maybe I could form some final, perfect memory before she vanished forever. But by then, she had ducked behind her camera, already back to work. I waved goodbye to thin air and walked on. She was gone, and I would never know how to remember her. Well, not yet. The following spring, having been home for five months, still living in the same terrible apartment and not really as close to that writing career as I wanted to be, I received a heavily padded package bearing numerous international postmarks, inside of which I found a CD and a short handwritten letter. Dear Andrew, I thought you might like having these. I know I do. Best wishes, Chaya. Placing the disc into my computer, I watched the images fill my screen, alternately gorgeous and terrible, subjects all vaguely familiar. And after a moment, I realized what I was looking at. There was Jaya that first afternoon in the marketplace, her long black hair dancing in the dusty Indian breeze. There was the old man selling silver bracelets in the plaza. There were the boats heading out of the harbor into the sunset. All the pictures we had taken, together. Those I recognized. But after all the scenery and characters came a series of six black and white shots I'd never seen, but which in an instant explained everything about us, about she and I and our brief time together better than my clumsily scribbled words ever could. In the first three, a lone male walks down a busy street, away from the photographer and increasingly obscured by the scene around him. 
He moves further into the crowd, his pale skin and buzz cut, his only signifiers against the ocean of people surrounding him. In the fourth, the camera zooms in as he looks over his shoulder and waves to an unknown, unseen person out of frame. In the fifth, the subject lowers his head and wipes something from his eyes. And in the sixth and final frame, the young man disappears completely and the crowd bustles on without him. And I finally understood what she had meant that afternoon when we first met. Because I wasn't in the shot, but she could see me. That was Andrew Riley. If his story gives you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Please join us for our ongoing series at Webster's Wine Bar and The Morseland, or one of our upcoming special events. Visit our website for more details. Second Story Podcast is brought to you by Amanda Delheimer, Megan Steelstra, Shannon Sullivan, Mikhail Fixel, and Nick Kawahara. I'm Miles Pulaski. Serendipity is funded in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency, the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, City Arts Grants, the Chicago Community Foundation, a part of the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts Work Fund, and listeners just like you. To find out more about Second Story, the performances, our performers, or to make a donation, visit us at secondstory.com.